Happy Father's Day, dads. It's good to see you. Glad you chose to spend part of your Father's Day with uh, our crew here. You know, I figured out this week why they call our language the mother tongue. Dads never get a chance to use it very much. Um, When my kids were little, they wanted to serve me breakfast in bed on Father's Day, so they put a cot in the kitchen. And Now, when you think about it, how hard was it for Adam to buy a Father's Day gift for, on Father's Day? I mean, what do you get for somebody who is everything? He's not just everything, he's everything. Um, and this is that day when, um, this is that day when, when your kids are going to call you and say, Dad, the thing we most want to do on Father's Day is take you to lunch or take you to dinner. And they do so, and then you end up picking up the check. So... Um, <laughs> Aren't I right? It's just kind of how it goes. It, it, Father's Day and Mother's Day are completely different. They're just really different. Do you know, back in the day when there was long distance, do you know the day of the year when most, most long-distance phone calls were made? Mother's Day. Do you know what Father's Day was, was famous for back in the days of long distance? Collect phone calls. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from AT&T. I mean, that. Okay, so... But I love being a dad. I hope you get time to be with your kids today. If your dad is still around, I hope you get time to, to talk to him or be with him today. Um, um, boy, I, I, would, I would give whatever I could to talk to dad today. And uh, I bet many of you are feeling that same emotion. I'm dealing with a younger man who is at odds with his father, and he has no plans to contact his father today. And I'm just thinking... You know, someday you're going to realize that's a mistake. And uh, so I hope you get time to be with your kids today and, and uh, with, with your dad if, if he's still around. And happy Father's Day, Dad. Glad you came to be a part of it, uh, to spend a part of it with us today. You know, at Christmas time, I had, a, I had this little ATV thing, this little battery-powered gator. You know what a gator is? little Jeep thing. I had it drop shipped to the girls in Michigan. And, and so on Christmas Eve, in a, about a 15-degree garage, Jake and I are putting this thing together. And I don't know about y'all, but what scares me more than probably anything else is a box labeled, Some Assembly Required. <laughs> and it was a big-time understatement. This thing had a 1,000 decals on it. So finally, I got to the point where I'm going to mess this thing up. You know what I did? I went and got Grandma. She helped us finish it. But Jake's good at that kind of thing, and it was good. But you know, the Bible, um, sometimes we got to deal a little bit with the idea that if, if that word, if that phrase strikes uh, fear in your heart, then what you and I need to realize, and I really believe this is true, even in reading something like Haggai that we've been in for the last two or three weeks, is the Bible is really user-friendly. That there's an ability to, if I really want to, and with the Holy Spirit's help, who really inspired its writing anyway, I can get it. I can apprehend it. And so we're going to work through another passage of that today. Um, the, the directions that God gives us in his word on how to live lives pleasing to him are user-friendly. And um, so we're going to see some of that today. Hey, you've got to introduce the boys, Okay. Introduce your boys. (laughs) 
Give us names again. Man, what good-looking guys. He told me kind of what they're involved in. That's good. Grandma's here with you again today, and that's, that's great news, too. Anybody else got somebody you want to introduce today? Hubert. What are you? Walita Renegar, great to have you here today. Would you welcome Walita? Anybody else you got visiting with you today or somebody brand new? Okay. Now, we met a couple of weeks ago, King Darius, and we met Haggai and his challenge to God's people to complete the rebuilding of the temple. You remember that they uh, were called to do that when they repatriated uh, Jerusalem and Palestine in uh, 520 B.C. And, um, well, actually, in about in, in before that. And they waited for, they, they set the foundation stones and then waited about 16 years to start the work up again. He's still dealing with that in the passage that we're going to deal with today. Um, uh, I want to talk just for a minute about the king, and, and we'll read in, in the beginning of, um, uh, we'll go down to verse 10 today, and we'll read again about Darius. Um, now, you, I've told you before, if you're, if you're concerned about who Darius is, and you kind of remember through this period of time, he was king of Persia, um, um, and the, the Persians had overthrown the Babylonians in this period of time. Uh, his leadership wouldn't last too long. Well, actually about 50 years, which wasn't bad, from 484 to 425 B.C. And uh, Darius gains the Persian throne by intrigue and assassination following the, de the death of his predecessor, Cambyses. And um, so what had happened then is that after... Um, he gained the throne. There were lots of the provinces of the Persian Empire who viewed his kingdom to be illegitimate. There were lots of hanging chads in Darius's life, I guess. Okay, They viewed it to be illegitimate. And so uh, the years of 522 to 518, which is we're right in the middle of that in 520, uh, is the time when Haggai... Uh, is ministering. They saw Darius that was occupied with putting down all kinds of rebellions among uh, kind of the provinces over which he was king. And so for, Dar for uh, Haggai to come back to him or, or for Zerubbabel to come back to him and say, we're having trouble getting the temple started uh, would be just one more thing that the king would have to deal with. He had already issued a royal decree. He'd, he'd put the royal treasury behind this building project and he just wants them to get the work done. So does God. So uh, Darius and God are really on the same page here. Now, let's begin to read. Okay, Bob, if you would, we're going to start about verse 10 and read down through 13. God is going to ask some questions. Now, the date, we get the date again. Interesting, I love this because we get exact dating. December 18th, 520 B.C., we got the first message from the Lord through Haggai in August. I forgot the exact date. We got another one in September. Okay, now it's December. It's been a couple of months, and now God speaks again. Bob, would you start at verse ten and read through thirteen? Bread or stew, 
Okay, now, it, what goes in your first blank here is that we've said, we remember, and I put a couple references there where God spoke before through Haggai, but um, it's been two months since God last spoke, and the work has gotten stuck again a little bit, so we're going to kind of deal with what's happening there. Now, so God asked the priests to do a little bit of study. Now, I've asked Steve Blair, if he would, to be our, um, our Pentateuch expert today. He's going to kind of go to uh, uh, lots of these places over in the Pentateuch and read to us. Steve, would you go to Leviticus 10 and read 8 down through 11? It's going to talk about, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and fill in your second blank here, the priests are supposed to not only be those who offer the sacrifices and prayers for the people, but they're also have, they spend lots and lots of their time studying the law, and they're supposed to be able to interpret it when there's a, um, a fine line of interpretation that comes. So uh, we want to kind of come to terms with what God is asking here in verse 11. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to ask Steve to go back to Leviticus. Here's what, here's what Haggai says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. Okay? Now, and specifically what the ruling is about is about holiness and the transfer of holiness. Now, I find that kind of an interesting concept. How is holiness transferred? And uh, now, Steve, if you would read, you're going to talk about holy things in the, in the law here in Leviticus 8 and how they're kind of transferred. Would you mind to read, I'm sorry, Leviticus 10, read 8 through 11. Now, there is, you see, they said, you can teach them about the law. There's also a distinction here between the holy and the not holy, all through the Old Testament, okay? Uh, and it's going to talk a little bit about, now, now Haggai here in verse 11, uh, <clears throat> in Haggai, in, in our verse 11, God is saying to the priest, do you understand what's going on? And uh, they're going to say, yes, we do. And the question in verse 12 is um, question of verse 12 is whether or not holiness can be passed by what I would call secondary contact. Secondary contact. Now, and the, the scenario that he places is, um, the, and the, the image I want to, want to put in your mind is your mom or your grandmother in an, in, um, an apron. Okay? Got an apron before her. Did your mother, grandmother, um, whoever, ever carry something in the apron? I saw it all the time. Uh, go pull cornbread, uh, some more cornbread out of the oven, and they throw it in the apron and, and deliver it to the table. Um, uh, maybe it was some rolls that were baked. That they, you get in the picture? Okay. Now the idea here is, if a priest is transporting consecrated meat, okay, it's to be given, um, it, it's part of the sacrifice, some of that is consecrated, that the priests are actually supposed to eat themselves. Um, if that is, if he's carrying that in his robe, which is also kind of consecrated, then if he touches something else, does it become clean or consecrated as well? Okay. 
Now, Steve, do you mind to go to Leviticus 6 and read um, 24 down through 27? Okay, now, the issue here is, he's making the point, and I don't want to belabor this point, but he's making the point that holiness is not easily transferred. Okay? We're going to contrast that by the opposite. But he's going to say holiness is not just automatically or easily transferred. It is not... Um, uh, by this kind of secondary contact. Um, now, if we go on to verse 13, what we're going to learn is that is absolutely not the case with defilement. Defilement. Now, Steve, I'm going to give you a minute to find this, but if you go to, uh, we're going to skip the Leviticus portions there. I'm going to ask you to go to Numbers 19 and read verse 22. Numbers 19, 22. Now, if holiness is not easily transferred, by just casual contact. Actually, the Bible is going to make the point here that defilement or impurity actually is. Okay? Now, when I was uh, what my dad would call an alleged plumber, <laughs> I never became a plumber. I always worked from the neck down. Filthiest, nastiest job ever, you know? That's why they get paid what they get paid. But um, when I was working, uh, actually on a heat crew, on a ground crew, the heat, they, they, Fred, they figured that I couldn't do a whole lot of damage there, uh, just getting dirty, you know. And uh, one of my jobs was to wrap uh, heat joints that were going in the in the ground, and um, with um, when they were joined all over these houses, and um, um, they they just kind of fit together, and then I would wrap them with with a cold tar called talcoat, the nastiest stuff ever. And it came in a five-gallon bucket that, that, in my recollection, Harry, weighed 95 pounds. I know it didn't weigh that much, but that bucket seemed really heavy. And I kept a little bit of water. I've used this illustration before, so some, let me belabor a little bit. But I kept a little bit of water in the top of my tar bucket, and I kept an old pair of white gloves. It's just because that's the kind of gloves we had. Not necessarily that I needed white gloves, but I kept an old pair of gloves in there, also wet, because my gloves that I worked in every day would just get absolutely putrefied by this black, tarry, sticky stuff that I was wrapping around uh, joints of heat pipe. Now, what I recognize that happened, and, and I'm going to tell you, this never happened. I, I worked at that for three or four years. Um, I can't tell you how many buckets of talcoat I went through in those years. And what I recognized is that my tar never became more glovey. Don't you think about that for a minute? The tar bucket never became more like the gloves. But on a regular basis, day after day after endless day, and they were endless, believe me, 
my gloves became really tarry. In fact, by the end of a week or two of using them, even though I dedicated them just to be used in the tar bucket, they were worthless and I had to throw them out and start over. Okay? Skip, that stuff is really nasty. I don't know if they even still make it. Do they? I just, you know, I think back to that and I think I was never clean in four years of my life. No, no, you're right. You're right, Wayne. It was just filthy, nasty. But it served a purpose. And, but what I'm going to tell you is my gloves never became, they always became really putrefied and nastified by this, this cold tar. My gloves, my, my tar bucket never became more like the gloves. It just didn't work that way. I think that's similar to the point that God is trying to make here. Uh, Steve, read, read from, um, if you would please, from Numbers 19.22. Anything that's defiled that I touch is going to make me unclean. It's just a natural law here. And you and I know it continues to be true. In fact, we deal a little bit in our culture, don't we, with trying to maintain purity in certain things. Now, I asked the question, when does purity matter? Uh, and I thought of a couple of things. Maybe you're thinking, when, I, I think of... Uh, when I get a jar of honey, I want it to be pure. I don't want it to have a bunch of stuff floating in it, unless it's honeycomb. That's fine. That's good. Right? But I want my, you know, and you'll read, pure honey. For my son, he thinks Dr. Pepper ought to be pure. Now, let me explain. He called me the other day, all elated, because in uh, southwest Michigan, he found a supplier for Dublin Dr. Pepper. Now, anybody know what that is? Okay? It's got only sugar in it. Only sugar in it. It doesn't have corn syrup. It's got the real stuff. Larry, did I see you back there? You got to stand. I got to get. Shelly, it's so good to see you again. This is my very best friend from high school, Larry Stein. He dressed all up to come to Sunday school. Uh, Larry works at the county assessor's office. Man, it's so good. I just didn't see you back there. I love you too, man. And this is the funniest guy I've ever known right here. He says I'm funny too, but looks don't count. So, Okay, now, Jake thinks that there's no Dr. Pepper like a Dublin Dr. Pepper, and they're made only down around Waco. And uh, now he can somehow they're getting some up in Michigan. And it, he says there's nothing like it, okay? Um, all right, because it's pure sugar in there. It's cane sugar. Now, um, uh, but I begin to think of the things that matter in our world that need to be pure. A marriage. Right? Um, medicine. Now, you can probably think of several things that where purity really does matter. Don't you think? By the way, I prefer real Coke. But I have trouble because when I drink real Coke, the only kind I can get comes from Mexico. And so when I tell people I'm going to get a case of Mexican Coke, they look at me kind of funny. <laughs> right? Okay. That's a different deal. But I love Mexican Coke. That Coca-Cola is what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, um, 
I, I read a story this week about a young lady who was going on a trip. This is kind of a preacher story, but I'm kind of an old preacher story, but I'm kind of an old preacher, so that's okay. Uh, about a group of young people that were planning an expedition to see a working coal mine. Now, who, who would take a bunch of kids to a coal mine? But, but some youth pastor thought that was a good thing. And um, uh, so members of the group have been told that conditions down and they're going to be pretty dirty, so you need to wear suitable clothing. And sure enough, and I probably knew this kid somewhere along the way, some little girl, showed, some little 15-year-old girl shows up in a, in a pristine white dress. And the pastor says, you're not going to be happy about the way this turns out. And she says, yeah, but I, this is a really pretty dress. I really love this dress. And, um, and so um, she says, I like this dress. What's to prevent me from wearing a white dress into the mine? And the very astute pastor says to her, nothing can prevent you from wearing a white dress into the mine. Uh, one of the miners at this point says, but there's a lot that's going to prevent you to wear, from wearing a white dress out of the mind. Isn't it interesting that so much in our world has a tendency to defile me just by contact? Naturally. If I think I'm going to drift toward purity, I'm mistaken. If I think I'm going to drift toward the things God values... I'm probably mistaken. Defilement is easily transferred, even by secondary contact, when I've got the, you know, when I've got the, the holy meat in the apron. Don't expect it to rub off on something else that's unholy. Expect the opposite to happen. That's the point Haggai is trying to make here. All right, now, the time has changed. And it's interesting. I think you're going to find, as we, as we launch into verse 14, you're going to find that, that God's words to the people have become, instead of being encouraging, you got the work started. He begins to be a little bit harsh. They have slowed down. They've gotten kind of, kind of complacent. And so he begins to be a little bit harsh. Let's start in verse 14. And if somebody would, would read down through verse 19. Sorry, Cindy, go ahead. Now, what has happened in these brief months, in a couple of months, since earlier in chapter 2, certainly toward the, toward the beginning of chapter 1, where God is speaking to them saying, get back to work, and they say, we're going to do it, and they start back to work. What I think has happened is they're still waiting on God to show up to improve their crop failure problem. And they get a little bit complacent, apathetic, 
about the work that God set their hands to do. Now, somebody would, if you would, go to Hebrews 2, verse 1. It's way almost to the end, Wayne. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the great example that Jesus sets before us and how he becomes our great high priest, it also warns here in several passages, beginning with chapter 2, verse 1, of you can begin to get far from God. And by the way, I don't think anybody that I've ever met that is far from God woke up some morning and said, I'm going to be far from God today. I don't think it happens that way. In fact, if I follow the pattern in the book of Hebrews that goes through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 6 and on into chapter 10, there is a, there is a progress or a process of kind of cooling off that takes place. And it begins with the word that I want you to put in your blank right here. It begins with drift. Drift. I think, as I study this chapter... I think that they have, there isn't a blank there for drift, is it? Sorry. I should read my own outline more, shouldn't I? I think they drifted back into apathy. Now, remember now that the illustration that he's using about the meat in the apron, consecrated meat in the apron that's not going to make everything around it holy, but the things around it that are defiled, that are unholy, could putrefy or could impurify the holy things of God. What I wonder is if one of the things that God is dealing with here is that these folks who started well, albeit 16 years too late, have drifted back into some apathy and maybe even just in some things that are kind of impure. Maybe, maybe they've changed their view of what is unclean. And they're waiting on God to show up to kind of make things right for them. And he's going to deal with that here. Now, he says in verse 15 and 16 that I need to take a look back as well as take a look forward. And he uses, uh, let me look at it again here. Um, now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. He's saying, look back when there were no stones placed on there. Now you've got some stones put up. But he said, look back when things weren't going all that well. And from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. He begins to say there's a correlation between what you're doing and what you're involved in and the response that you're getting or the, or the outcome that you've got. Uh, the word heap here is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's, it, the idea of that is that they have threshed, uh, ripened, um, sheaves of grain, and they take the grain that's also mixed with chaff. Larry, what's chaff? It's like husk and stuff, right? That mixes in with the grain after they've threshed it. And they literally will take, they'll take a winnowing fork or even, even um, um, you know, some piece of cloth, put that in there, they'll throw it in the air, and the chaff blows away. And what ends up usable, falls to the ground in a heap. It's the heap that's talked about here. Okay, Falls in a heap. And what he's saying is your heap is not, what, is not as big as it used to be. And you wonder why. 
He's saying you go to the wine vat, you expect to get 50, um, what, what's the, the amount of measure it's using here? Measures, okay. So, um, <laughs> pints, fifths, whatever it is, okay. Expecting to get that, and you're getting less than half of that, and you're wondering what's the deal. Um, uh, it's it's kind of interesting here, I think, that where there is no, where there's a lack of de- obedience, God is going to sometimes respond with some discipline. Now, they think, in verse 17, they think that the result of their um, agricultural problems are just bad luck. They've, they've kind of got this opinion that the result of all that is just kind of bad luck. So God is going to say, you need to look back. You need to look forward as well. I spent some time this week. Um, Rhonda and I were married 37 years this week. Can you believe she stuck with me that long? Can you believe she hung in with me for 37 years? You know, um, much fatter I used to be and got much less hair than I used to. And, and she still loves me. She, 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 love is definitely blind. Um, but we actually at dinner on Tuesday night took a really wonderful look back at some good things and some things where we learned. And then we also looked forward. That's a, that's a good thing. I, I think it's just a good, good thing to do in any relationship I'm in. Steve, would you go to Deuteronomy? And I want us to read 28-22 because God talks about here what's coming. He talks about um, kind, of a, kind of a curse on the land if they don't obey. 28-22. Okay, now, there is a correlation, there seems to be, between the discipline of God and what is going on in some of their lives. They haven't seen it yet, so Haggai is kind of bringing it it to bear here. And he says, I want you to look back, and when he he tells them to look back, he says, I want you to look back at least as far as when the temple foundation was laid, which was how long ago? 16 years. 16 years of that inactivity, okay? He wants them to look back and remember. The question that we're left hanging with in verse 18 is will God, who has allowed this discipline to occur, will he reverse things? Will things then change? Look at verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Now, here's the question he's dealing with here. What's the answer to God's question? Is the seed still in the barn? The answer is no. There's no seed in the barn. Why? Because it's planting season. They've just come through planting season. It's not time uh, for there to be harvest yet. So they're going to say, if if, if this is a rhetorical question, which it is, they're going to think in their minds, the answer, there's two answers to this question. No, there's no seed in the barn because the seed's in the ground. And they're also going to think um, that harvest is at least three months away where we're dealing with it here. Now, 
for the trees which he references, pomegranate, olive, all those. Harvest is yet six months away. It's not time for there to be grain in the barn. And so they're in kind of this pregnant pause of a moment. But God, in verse 19, gives them a promise. What's his promise? Where's the seed? Well, there's no seed in the barn. Okay, I know that. From this day forward, he's going to do what? Yeah. You've begun to take care of what you're supposed to take care of. I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of this. And we're going to move on here. Now, here's some application for the day. And we'll go here in a minute. What are we passionate about keeping pure in our culture? Think about it just a minute. What do we really want to be pure in our culture? Water, right? Uh, what was it? What was it last year? That's one of the little townships around here. Um, their water got really foul. Where was that? Was it Con? Well, certainly Conowa, because they they just ran out of water. But because uh, we hijacked some of it. But but. Um, um, uh, there was another little town that they had boiling water for a couple of weeks. Anyway, was it Minka? Okay. Um, and I just remember reading about that every day thinking, I bet this has got to be really frustrating to those people because they just don't want to drink impure water. We want our water to be pure. What else? Our food. Yeah, in fact, we get a little nervous. We hear stories about uh, E. coli carried in, in the lettuce field somewhere, and, and we get a little nervous, and we make sure we wash everything. And Okay. What else? Air. Lots of government regulation designed to help keep the air clean. What are you doing? Oh, you're women. Okay, we're not going to go there, though. <laughs> Isn't it true that in our culture, we, there's lots of regulations. There's billions of, of governmental dollars spent to keep certain things, certain commodities in our world pure, absolutely pure. And we want it that way. Why is it that at the same time we seem fairly apathetic about moral and spiritual purity? Hopefully not around here. But don't we just generally? And I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if a lot of this has to do with my own drift I'm a frog in a kettle, you know. It, you know, at first it's cool and comfortable, and the heat goes on, and it's like, hey, I got a hot tub. <laughs> and before I know it, I've cooked in the pot, right? Gradually that heat rises, and I haven't even noticed. It's imperceptible that my attitudes, my heart, my actions have even changed. Maybe my language. I become putrefied by the things around me that are also defiled. If I'm going to be holy in this culture, if I'm going to be pure in a culture that is not, can, can I get an amen on that one? Would you, do, would you agree that our culture is not pure? I'm going to have to be intentional about doing so. I'm going to have to take steps to remain pure in this culture. What does God promise me 
He promises me he's going to show up. I think in a world where impurity is flourishing, uh, these laws of the Old Testament that regard um, kind of defilement may be kind of confusing, and I might read that and say, man, how out of touch with these people. But I recognize um, what we can learn from this. Let me give you two quick things and then we'll go. All right? Some things in this world I'd just be better off to stay away from. Not going to name them? It's up to you to figure that out, okay? Some things in this world, I'd just kind of be better off to stay away from. My guess is, without much thought, as a Christian, with the Holy Spirit alive in your heart, you can name those things pretty easily. There's some things I probably ought to just kind of stay away from because of this principle from Haggai 2 of this natural putrefication or defilement process that is just kind of automatic. So some things I ought to probably just kind of determine if for my life, if I'm going to stay close to Christ and if I'm going to have an impact on a world that's impure, then I probably better stay away from some things. But secondly, I think I've got to come to terms with that defilement in my life, impurity in my life, comes from exposure to that which is already defiled. And I'm going to have to be intentional if I'm going to stay different, pure, holy in a really unholy world. I hope you'll take a, a, just a minute, five minutes today, to think about some decisions that you may need to make in your life that might cause you to live a life of blessing in a world that's not going the right way. What are some decisions you may need to make? Joe writes us a poem for today, for Father's Day. Is this this year's Father's Day poem? When did you write this? This is a figure. He usually writes something on the day. Okay. I didn't know my father. He wasn't around that much. But I know my heavenly father, for I see and feel his touch. Isn't that good? In children playing, the birds of the air and the warmth of the sun, they show he is here. As we remember all these men on this Father's Day, let's honor the greatest one of all who taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Isn't that good? This guy's really got talent. Bless you. Thank you, Joe. God bless you, dads. Have a great day with your family, and uh, I'll see you next week. We'll be back in Haggai 2 and a little bit in Zechariah next week.